Now, we are going to have some fun in church this morning. Um, I will be very honest with you. I get a little bit scared when we don't have a sermon series that we're following and Frosty asks me to preach, right? Uh, And that's because when I then come before God and I go, hey God, what do you want me to preach on this morning? I'm like, I don't quite have that same control or direction of what God answers. And sometimes it's not quite the answer that I want to hear. Just like this week when God actually said to me, hey Sherm, you're going to be preaching on... Right? You guys can dance to this. I love it. I love it. Nyla's uh, dance moves on the front row here. Hey, Sherm, you're going to be preaching on money. And you guys know that my reaction straight away was, no, I'm not. (laughs) Sorry, God, I can't hear you. I'm not listening. Um, And I very much was like, ooh, that's a tough one. I love this conversation, but I know that it's difficult to have for a range of different reasons. And so my prayer this week has been this, that we are able to simply understand more of the heart of God when it comes to our finances. Um, All cards out on the table, bit of an honesty hour moment here. Um, I am currently in the middle of a the most difficult and trusting, trying season that I've had in terms of uh, finances. I lost my job with the mandates for the season that they were in place uh, last year. And so in that sense, it's been a real tester of my faith and whether or not I can literally put my money where my mouth is and say, hey God, I trust that you will come through. You've given me peace about this and actually I'm going to watch what you'll do. And of course, he did. This is actually, funnily enough, one of my favorite conversations, this whole talk around money, because it's interactive with God. Not because I love money itself. I don't love to pry. Not because I've grown up with lots of money. That's definitely not the case. Uh, And trust me, it is not because I know much about money, because I definitely do not. Um, But it's actually just because I love to watch what God does when we place the money that he gave us back into his hands. He always exceeds our expectations. And that's why I love talking about this. Um, Even though I've had that revelation time and time again, and I've seen God move in many ways in terms of finances, um, I know that there was this niggling feeling in the back of my mind. I was like, oh, but it's still awkward to talk about for some reason. I was like, maybe it's just because it's a platform, but actually, can we just address the elephant in the room? Greetings, Frosty. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, (laughs) For real, though, uh, there are... There are a lot of churches, this is the elephant in the room, haha. There are a lot of churches uh, around the world that have done the Bible a total disservice when it comes to preaching on finances. They have not preached what the word actually says, but they've distorted it and coerced people into doing things that they want them to do. Here are a couple of different examples of what's made it so awkward to have this talk on a platform. You've got prosperity gospel all around the world, right? This is a gospel that essentially preaches that everyone, uh, that God's will for people is to be financially rich, right? Uh, And also physically healed, but that is directly linked to how much money you give to your local church. Uh, Obviously then, this creates a huge divide between the rich and the poor, and it creates a huge divide between the sick and the well. And so it doesn't do what the Bible encourages uh, encourages us to do in terms of unity. 
uh, you've got different ministries like healing ministries around the world that uh, teach that uh, there's a, a face cloth that I will send out to you and people will pray over it. And the more you pay for this face cloth, the better your chances are of being healed of your sickness. There are lots of ministries around the world like that. Uh, there are many churches around the world that make tithing compulsory. They say, hey, if you're actually joining our church, then you must tithe X amount. And a lot of these churches actually go as far as pushing their congregation members to pledge a tithe. So pledge out of pocket more than they can actually afford because that shows their trust in God's provision that is yet to come. And so they're not teaching people to be wise with their finances. Now, I'm not here by any means to... Uh, try and call out false teaching. What I'm actually here to highlight is the need to press in now more than ever about what the Bible actually teaches in the area of finance. Jesus taught more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Out of his 40 parables, a whopping 11 of them were directly concerning the handling of our finances. He spoke about this in parables more than he did about prayer. He spoke about it more than he did about faith. So why do we naturally tend to shy away from a conversation that Jesus actually had more than anything else? I believe that as the church, it's more important than ever to actually come back and realign ourselves with his teachings on money in this day and age. Hence the title of today's message. It's called Checks and Balances. Get it? Checks and balances. Um, I know that this section over here may not understand what a check is. I literally had some uh, some year 10s. Sorry, youthies. Um, have any of you actually written a check before, seen a check before? Yeah. Oh, some of you. Okay. Wow. Well done. You're raised well. Um, I, I've had I've had year tens literally say to me, like I mentioned in a social studies class, uh, that uh, you know writing a check, and they were like, "What's that?" <laughs> Lost cause. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, but let's be a church, this is my challenge to us this morning, let's be a church uh, that uses the teachings of Jesus as a framework to uh, hang our checks and balances on. In other words, let's use the Word of God as our template, as our example, and as our reference in this area. A good starting place is in the Gospel of Matthew, where we see an account of Jesus' very first public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And guess what he brings up multiple times? Ding, 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 the relationship that we have with money. You'll see it up on the screen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 24, or verse 24. It says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus uses the concept of a master and slave relationship here because that's what the people uh, at that time were understanding. They had come from generations of slavery. They understood very well that a master has full ownership over their slave. It's not like how we would probably perceive it uh, nowadays as a part-time job. You can have multiple contracts and work part-time for this one and part-time to that one and be devoted to both. They understood very well what Jesus was saying here is that we cannot love both. It is simply impossible to be fully devoted to God and also fully devoted to money. 
And most of us would like to think uh, that we don't have an issue when it comes to loving money. Well, an interesting series of articles were published at the end of last year, December uh, 2022. And uh, it was a series of after stories of people who had won the lottery around the world. We're talking everyday people like you and I becoming overnight millionaires. In an ideal world, we'd be like, oh, that money, that sets them up for a lifetime, or at the very least, they'll be able to donate lots of that to charity. Um, but a whopping 70%, 70% of those people who win multi-million dollar lottery jackpots blow all of their money within the first five years. Uh, most of these stories had shared how they hated the person they became simply because of what the greed did to them. For most of them, uh, their love of money often overtook their love of their spouse. It tore their families apart and it created enemies out of friends. Uh, a standout story for me was this bizarre story of a woman named Evelyn Adams uh, in America. She had won a seven-figure lottery, right? Millions of dollars. She won a seven-figure lottery, not once, but twice within uh, the period of a few years, gaining over $5 million in total. In 2012, the New York Post caught up with her in a New Jersey trailer park trailer park. Uh, she told the newspaper, yeah, I'm broke now. I work two jobs and my advice to anyone who wins would be to go and see your lawyer and your accountant first. What would those lawyers and accountants have you do? They would run some checks and balances for you. I can't help but read stories like Evelyn's and actually see it as a perfect illustration of what Jesus is teaching about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 here. If we are not careful, money will become our master. A lot of these people actually ended up bankrupt and worse off than they were at the beginning before winning. So the question now becomes, how do we avoid this money trap? Here are a few checks that I believe God warns us about in His Word. And the first check is this. You'll have your notes uh, down in the notes app if you wanted to take any. Uh, the first check is this. Don't let money become the master of your contentment. Being content with what we have uh, is a constant challenge when it's much easier to actually focus on what we lack, right? What we don't have. And I'll never forget a story of an old friend of mine, and she told me about a missions trip that she took uh, to Fiji. And this missions trip she described to me as the very first time that she ever witnessed pure joy. And it wasn't uh, like you might imagine at a five-star hotel on Denaral. It wasn't um, anything like that, actually. It was quite the contrary. It was pure joy in a village. She spent time with a wonderful old grandmother in her house, uh, and she was shocked that this house of hers didn't have walls. She sat there with this grandmother, and she sang worship songs, and she had her beautiful prized possession, which was her Bible sitting right next to her, and she spoke words uh, just riddled with gratefulness. And so she was so thankful of the fact that God had blessed her with such a rich life. My friend sat there weeping for hours. She wept with this grandmother for hours because she realized that this lady was more content than anyone she had ever met back home who had accumulated wealth and accumulated stuff. 
what this teaches us is that true contentment doesn't come from material possessions. It comes from genuinely knowing the love of God. In the New Testament, Paul writes a similar uh, reminder in his letter to Timothy, telling him how to instruct the church when it comes to wealth. And you'll see in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. He says this, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. What a great reminder. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. Quite like those stories we just read. Um, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This passage is often misquoted uh, by the negative Nancys around the world. That's what I like to call them. Uh, And they like to say things like, oh, well, God doesn't want us to be wealthy because the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. Well, actually, it doesn't. Let's have another look at the scripture. It says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. God is not anti-money, friends. He's actually anti us putting money above God. This verse warns of the grief that comes when humans actually place money as an idol above God. Just think about it. What drives people to gamble away their possessions? The love of money. What drives a human being to enslave or exploit another human being as if they were their possession? The love of money. What drives a workaholic away from quality time with their family? The love of making money. What drives someone to steal something that doesn't belong to them? The love of money, it's everywhere. We can't escape it. And money itself is not evil, but it holds a power to bring about evil. Remember that money should never become the master of our contentment. It simply should be a tool that we hold in an open hand before God and say, use me, use me. And I love this encouragement. We are called to love God and use money, not use God when it's convenient to us, and love money. The second check that we need to consider is this. Don't let money master your priorities. This is a huge one. I remember when I was a teenager, I used to babysit. I was probably 14 or 15 at the time. I used to babysit for a family that had uh, two young boys under the age of five. And something that I loved that they did is they had this little magnetic whiteboard up on the fridge and they were teaching their, their little kids to budget, right? Beautiful parenting. <laughs> they were teaching their kids to budget. And on this little whiteboard, they had to write down every week what they planned to spend the money on. Week in and week out, without fail, the very first list, uh, the very first thing on both of their lists that both of the boys insisted on was that 50 cents of my $5 of pocket money goes to tithing. 50 cents goes to tithing, 10%. And I remember being my, uh, my stubborn teenage self who loved a babysitting paycheck. I was like, you guys don't even know what tithing is. I was like, what does that mean to you? Like trying to catch them out. And then these boys actually said to me, they were like, well, Jesus is the reason why we have the $5 in the first place. And he only actually 
asks for like 50 cents back. So we get to use $4.50, like it was the most epic thing ever. And I was like, that is so awesome. And then they'd continue to outline what they would spend the rest of it on. Always lollies, always games. Um, The biblical concept of tithing is exactly that. It's showing God that, hey, you're my priority, not the money that I've got. The word tithe in English uh, is derived from the Hebrew word asherat, uh, which simply means one-tenth. A bit of context for you, in Old Testament law, so back uh, in the book of Leviticus, God commanded the people through Moses to give back to him a tenth, so 10% of everything that they were entrusted with. This is where... um, Uh, They actually traded with not quite physical money like we think about it today, but they traded with things like their crops and agriculture and land mainly. And this is where the term first fruits comes from. And it's mentioned in Proverbs chapter 3. You'll see it pop up behind me. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 9 to 10. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth. This is their reminder. With the first fruits of all of your crops, then your barns will be filled overflowing and your vats will brim with new wine. The book of Leviticus outlines tithing as non-negotiable. It was a non-negotiable aspect of the law as part of God's system to sustain the growth of his church. It was actually considered to be a sin not to tithe because they said that you were robbing God of what was rightfully his. It's quite a sobering perspective to come back to. I'll attempt to unpack this system in a nutshell. God uh, needed people to be in charge of temple worship, right? Uh, They were the ones who had to take care of his people, the Israelites. And so he appointed the Levites as a tribe of holy priests to be devoted and dedicated to the ministry and the teaching of the people. Much like we would recognize the call of God on pastors' lives today. Uh, God promised them in return that he would ensure that all of their needs were met and cared for. And part of his providence was to instruct the people then to tithe 10%. So to give that portion of money back to God. And they would tithe that to the Levites so that they could then continue to sustain the church, right? It seems like a foolproof plan. I'm like, wow, God, go figure, is a genius. But alas, uh, every just like every other instance in the Bible, the Israelites didn't quite uh, understand the assignment. It wasn't long before greed crept in. The standards of what should have been offered to God as a holy and perfect offering very clearly, uh, very quickly hit rock bottom. They were offering stolen goods, would you believe it, on an altar to God. They were sacrificing diseased animals when they were actually told that they needed to be uh, blemishless, without blemish. They were uh, sacrificing, uh, giving up withered crops rather than the first fruits uh, of what they earned. And obviously this was a disgrace to the God that gave them everything that they had. God knows the grip that money can have on us and the trap that we fall into when we actually start to take uh, provision into our own hands, when actually God is very clear about the fact that provision is his job. More wealth to us naturally makes us think, oh, more security, right? But hear this, tithing is nothing to do with possessions and everything to do with priorities. Let's take a look at what God says through the prophet Malachi in the last book of the Old Testament. I don't think this slide will show up behind me, but you can listen and lean in. 
In Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, God's saying this to his people. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, i.e. stop cheating me, guys. <laughs> bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house available. Test me in this. This is really important. Bookmark that and we'll come back to it. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see that I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines on your fields will not drop before its right time, says the Lord. Then all the nations will call you blessed, Pardon me, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is radical teaching. God is promising them something that he has never done before and never again does in scripture. Need I remind you that it is considered a sin to put God to the test. Even Jesus himself in the New Testament, when he is tempted in the wilderness, doesn't dare to test God, right? But God is actually giving us permission in this passage. He's saying, hey, when you bring your tithe, Put me to the test in your finances. Actually see that I will hold up my side of the bargain. See that I will promise to bless you in abundance, i.e. bless you more than what you think you've given up. This is radical teaching. I could tell you a ton of stories of people that I personally know who have actually done this. They've taken that very literally and held God to his word. They've challenged him on what he promises and logged down to the very cent everything that they tithed. Uh, then they also logged down every single thing that they received back or were excused of. Um, not once have I heard any of these people's stories come back unmet. Not once have any of them said, actually, I've lost out in the process. And many times I've heard stories like this. I got free accommodation just offered to me out of nowhere. I got promoted to business class and I didn't even ask for it. I got dirt cheap flights in the last minute and the, the plane was full. I had strangers giving me envelopes of money saying that God told them to give it to me. There were so many stories among stories that I've heard of God's provision coming through when it followed your obedience. The act of tithing unlocks for us an aspect of God's character that is interactive. That's what I love about this. And that is what provision looks like. And it's not only an Old Testament concept. Jesus affirms in the New Testament that we should not neglect the tithing principle. Many like to believe that his death on the cross does away with the law, right? And so therefore the need to tithe. Uh, and while it may not be a prerequisite to get into heaven, so it doesn't like affect your salvation, whether or not you tithe, uh, Jesus clearly encourages this discipline because he knows the benefits that tithing brings. In Matthew 23, verse 23, he's teaching uh, his people and speaking to the Pharisees here, the hypocrites. And he says, you hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe. Yes, this is his affirmation here. I expect that you would tithe, but do not neglect the other important things. 
The Pharisees, who were the hypocrites, they were the teachers at the time, teachers of the law. Uh, they allowed money to master their priorities, all for the sake of being able to self-righteously tick the tithing box and please God. Uh, but they actually completely lost sight of the fact that God also calls us to love Him and love people well. So my encouragement to you is this. Do not let money master these priorities either. And my final check-in is this. Don't let money become the master of your inheritance. And Keys, you can join me now. You may be familiar uh, with an encounter that Jesus has in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels, and it is referred to, uh, this man is referred to as the rich young ruler. In Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22, it says this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell at his feet uh, before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. I just love that Jesus is clearly the type of person that like answers a question with a question. My guy. Uh, no one is good, he, he replies, except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, steal, give false testimony, defraud, and also honor your mother and father. Funnily enough, they were the six commandments to do with loving people. So he's giving that reminder again. The man then replies, Teacher, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Or in other translations, it says, looked at him with love. One thing you lack, he said. My heart would be beating if this was me in his shoes. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then... Come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is one of the only times in Scripture that we see someone respond with deep sadness to an offer that Jesus himself gave him to join him. We could have had a 13th disciple if this guy was like, yep, that's me. We could have even had a potential another book in our Bible from this financial wise man. Uh, but he actually walked away from the discipleship of Christ himself. And of course, we know that the reason behind his sadness was his love of money. Now, what we don't know, to be fair, is whether or not this rich man walked away sad and sold his possessions, or whether he walked away sad and actually didn't listen to a word that Jesus says. But regardless, as soon as he walked away, Jesus turns to his disciples and he makes this um, very, very famous verse. He says this, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, i.e. impossible, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, this is another crowd favorite when it comes to misinterpreting Scripture. People love to claim that what Jesus means here is that simply it is impossible for a rich man to make it into heaven. You cannot be rich and be a Christian. Um, but actually, in reality, Jesus is actually teaching that earthly riches 
create a barrier for us that messes with our obedience to Him. There are many schools of thought around what this camel analogy is actually referring to. One being that Jesus could have been referring to a tiny after hours entrance beside the main gate of Jerusalem, which was nicknamed the Eye of the Needle. It is well understood that travelers who had camels in tow, they uh, would arrive at the gate during the night and the entrance was the only way in. The small eye of the needle was the only way in. It was fine for the owner, but obviously the camel was another story. Camels in this case needed to be stripped of all of their baggage, i.e. their earthly possessions, and buckled down to their elbows in order to then fit through the gate and enter into the city. That is a picture of obedience. This process was painful, however it was possible. It simply required submission to the camel's master. If we allow money to be our master, then money is the extent to what we will inherit on earth. Let's not make the same mistake that this rich young ruler had made who was so attached to his earthly riches that the offer of heavenly riches was actually really disheartening. If we allow um, money to do that, then obviously our finances will be a blunder. As I come to a close this morning, can I remind you of these checks and balances that we can keep coming back to when we are thinking of our finances. The first one, do not let money become the master of your contentment. Instead, let the love of God dictate how content you are. Number two, don't let money master your priorities, friends. Instead, put God first and He will provide for you in abundance. That is a promise and He gives us permission to test Him in that. And number three, the final one, don't let money become the master of your spiritual inheritance. Instead, keep your eyes fixed on your heavenly riches.